0: This
1: is the John Fuglesang podcast. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fuglesang. Welcome to Channel 127. We got a great show planned for you tonight. The great Professor Corey Bretschneider is here uh, to talk all about what the Supreme Court is going to do to affirmative action. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Also, Joan Strassman joins us for a wonderful book for people who are fans of fall or nature or caring about the environment, slow birding, the art and science of enjoying the birds in your own backyard. It was one of the most, I don't know, fascinating and spiritual and, uh, just sanity break books we've come across at our desk in quite a while. We're very happy to have her here as well. And, of course, our most important guest, as always, is you guys, 866-997-4748. Thea Harper's our associate producer. She will be joining us later this evening for The Minority Report. Chris Household is our executive producer running this thing out of South Carolina. I'm Johnny. I'm so happy you guys are here with us. And we really invite our right-wing friends to call us. We love to hear from our Republicans and our Trump supporting friends, because those are kind of two groups, I think. You know, I wanted to begin tonight talking all about uh, abortion and what's going on right now, but I gotta, I, I gotta begin by asking, what hath Trump ye wrought? I mean, Trump and Kanye have been working overtime to make anti semitism normal again, and of course, Kyrie Irving has been getting in on the action. Last week, the superstar player from the Nets posted a link on Twitter to the movie Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up, Black America, a film that's pretty much just pushing anti-Semitic tropes about Jewish people, lying about their origins. It's, uh, you know, more protocols of the elders of Zion nonsense that includes the assertion the Holocaust never happened. Now, what do you do when an NBA star tweets a link to a movie saying the Holocaust never happened? Kyrie said, I didn't mean to cause any harm. I'm not the one that made the documentary. He refused to apologize for the post. And, and when they asked him what specific points in the movie he didn't agree with, he was kind of vague. He said some of the criticism of the Jewish faith in the community, for sure. Some points made in there that were unfortunate. Here's, uh, here's part of Kyrie's statement from just the other day. you have any anti-Semitic beliefs. Again, I'm going to repeat. I don't know how the label becomes
4: justified because you guys ask me the same questions over and over again. But this is not going to turn into a spin around cycle of questions upon questions. I told you guys how I felt. I respect all walks of life and embrace all walks of life. That's where I sit. I think what people want to hear, though, is a yes or no on that question. Yes or no. I I cannot be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from.
2: I I cannot
3: be anti-Semitic
4: if I know where I come from.
1: Boom. (laughs) Oh, I love me some black Israelites. We have them here in New York City. They're fascinating guys. They're very angry and uh, not fans of people who call themselves Jews. Now, this is, of course, a page out of Kanye's playbook. He tried this line last week. In the past week, the NBA and the Players Union put out statements condemning anti-Semitism. They didn't mention Kyrie Irving. Uh, the owner of the Nets, Joe Sy, said in a tweet he was disappointed with Kyrie and would talk to him. So then last night, Wednesday, Kyrie Irving and the Nets said they would each donate half a million dollars to different causes and organizations that fight hate in their community. But that wasn't enough. This morning, less than an hour before Kyrie Irving spoke, uh, Commissioner Adam Silver expressed a lot of disappointment that um, Mr. Irving had not offered an unqualified apology and more specifically denounced the violent, harmful content contained in the film he chose to publicize. Now, what are we talking about here? What's so bad about this movie? You know, people are are talking about Kyrie Irving. They're not really talking too much about what's in the film. And it's a movie that claims Jews were responsible for the slave trade. (laughs) Pretty sure it was Christians over here doing the trading. says that Jews are imposters. Blacks are the real Jews and God's chosen people. says that Jews rule every industry in the world. They control every facet of society and they dominate the media, helping Satan deceive the world. Ooh, I know some guys over at Breitbart might like this movie. Uh, it proclaims that many famous high-ranking Jews worship Satan. If they worship Satan, they're not actually Jewish. It also claims that racism towards black people began with Jews. I, you, you could have had me with whites. And that anti-black racism began in Jewish texts, saying that Judaism teaches that blacks are cursed. You know what? I've never heard that. I've heard a lot of Christians distort the bible and the story of noah and noah's son ham to claim that blacks are cursed but that that's you know the gist of it and it quotes the protocols of the elders of zion which warns of this jewish plan for global domination it's hate speech disguised as a documentary and Kyrie used his platform to promote it and everyone wants an apology from him because well i guess because they want to believe there's it. misunderstanding that he doesn't really believe this stuff so why won't he just apologize but he does believe it He's not sorry. Guys, stop looking for an apology. Don't stop waiting for that. Apparently, the NBA has stopped waiting for that. But in the last couple years, the U.S. has seen a substantial jump in, I mean, anti-Semitic is a good word. Let's just say Jew-hating incidents, 941 incidents in 2015. You know how many it was last year tracked by the ADL? 2,717. From 941 incidents the year Trump ran to 2,717 last year, the ADL said today they're working with the FBI to address the credible threat about synagogues that might be attacked. Yeah, we woke up to that today. The FBI is warning us in their Newark field office they've received credible information of a broad threat to synagogues in New Jersey. A tweet from the FBI's office said, we ask at this time, you take all security precautions to protect your community and facility. How is this happening? I mean, how is it speeding up so fast? Four years ago, you remember a gunman walked into a synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the tree of life synagogue and killed 11 people was the deadliest attack on Jewish people in the United States in history. And we keep seeing all these anti Semitic messages in, in, in the public spaces of Jacksonville, Florida. Those demonstrators in LA who hung banners over the freeway saying how much they support Kanye, and Kanye was right about the Jews. They, they were making a Nazi salute. This is LA. This was happening. Kanye made his comments on October 8th. He was going DEF CON 3 on Jewish people. It's DEF CON 3, but yeah. And he said, You guys have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone who ever opposes your agenda. Without specifying what group he was addressing. You know, Donald Trump, the guy who said very fine people on both sides when the neo-Nazis marched in Charlottesville chanting Jews will not replace us, came out just last month and was talking about how the Jews in America need to get their act together and support him like the good Jews in Israel. And it's like the <laughs> Donald Trump is threatening America's Jews. Kanye West saying he's going Deathcon Con 3. Kylie Irving promotes an anti-Semitic movie. The FBI's Newark Field Office saying they're getting credible information of a broad threat to synagogues in Jersey. And today, the Nets suspended Kyrie Irving indefinitely for his failure to disavow anti-Semitism since he posted the link. He did say, in fairness, there were some things in the movie he did not agree with. He also deleted the tweet, in fairness, but he didn't apologize. He didn't disavow any of it. The Nets said in their statement, and they didn't hold back that Kyrie Irving was currently unfit to be associated with the team. Now, do yourself a favor sometime this week and go on Twitter and see who's defending Kyrie Irving and see who's not. And that'll let you know, probably, what side you'll land on. Dave Zirin, our good friend from The Nation, he said, he quoted the Nets' statement on Kyrie Irving. We are of the view that he is currently unfit to be associated with the Brooklyn Nets. We have decided that Kyrie will serve a suspension without pay until he satisfies a series of objective remedial measures. And and again, this is not about getting an apology. It's not about what kind of amends he's going to make. It's already done. The whole thing is, is Kyrie Irving going to let himself be made a hero by the white nationalist anti-Semitic presence in our country? There are people right now that are actively organizing against the Jewish community. There are people right now who want violence against the Jewish community. That's what's at stake here. That's what we're worried about. And by the way, you could still see this movie, Buy or Rent, on Amazon. You know how many movies are banned from being on Amazon? <laughs> and you can now buy this one anytime. I don't know why Jeff Bezos gets off the hook. <laughs> but there we are. We want to know what you think. Again, I, I wanted to begin the show tonight talking about, well, about abortions. Because we're five days left till Election Day. Over 30,555,755 votes have already been cast as of 12 noon today, according to the U.S. Elections Project. More than 80% of abortion clinics in 15 states that have strict bans have stopped offering the procedure since the Supreme Court gutted Roe v. Wade. Only 13 out of 79 clinics in those states were still providing care for women on October 2nd. October 2nd was 100 days after Dobbs. All of those 13 clinics are located in Georgia, where it's only a six-week ban. Texas, they had the most closures. 23 clinics were operating before the decision. 12 shut down, 11 are opening, but they're only offering services other than abortion. Hawaii is refusing to cooperate with states that are prosecuting their governor signed an executive order to stop other states from punishing their residents who terminate pregnancies in the islands, and stop other states from sanctioning local health practitioners who provide such care. Legal abortions in our country fell six percent in the first two months after the Supreme Court overturned Roe. That was the headline that caught my eye this morning. That was what I planned to talk about before Kyrie Irving made things interesting. This data comes from We Count, which is led by the Society of Family Planning, and it's sort of the first attempt to count nationwide abortions since the court killed Roe v. Wade. So in the states that banned abortion or the states that severely restricted the procedure, there were over 8,000 fewer abortions in August than in April. That's a 95% decrease in those states. The number of abortions increased in states where abortion remained legal went down in the states where it's been criminalized went up about 11% in states where it was still legal. Illinois had the biggest increase, with 2,710 more terminations in July and August than they had in April and May. And new data suggests that abortion has declined about 2% in the U.S. since the end of row because people are traveling across state lines or ordering pills online. And when it comes to the surge of overseas abortion pills, we don't really know how effective these bans are. We don't really know what's going on, because while states were banning abortion all summer, the number of American women ordering pills from overseas, you know, chemical abortions, not surgical, it went up significantly, so much so it could offset most of the drop in legal abortions. But we don't know how many. That's the crazy thing. One of the studies that was released by WeCount, uh, it showed that legal abortions fell, like we said, by 7,000 a month, Right. And in states where abortions remain legal, the number of abortions increased. But a separate study that came out in the uh, medical journal JAMA found a nearly 120% increase in online abortion pill orders from overseas in July and August. That's through aid access. They operate outside the U.S. health system, and they're designed to get around those state abortion bans. So when you put these two studies together, there were about like 2,000 fewer abortions every month compared back in April when it was legal still in every state. So Abigail Aiken, professor at University of Texas in Austin and a co-author on the JAMA paper said, if the goal is for some people to remain pregnant when they don't want to be, the goal is being achieved. If the goal is to end abortion, it's not effective. Also, it doesn't really know for sure what the number of abortions really is, because it doesn't include people who got pills from other websites, right? Right. I mean, Aid Access is the biggest provider, but there's a lot of other websites that have popped up or grown in the last two months where you can order pills from overseas. Also, it doesn't talk about women who got an abortion outside what we'll call the formal health system in another way, like taking herbs or going to see a guy in a garage who your friend tells you can terminate a pregnancy for you or crossing the border to Mexico to get a pill because they're sold over the counter as an ulcer medicine there. These abortions are still happening. These are the ones we're not going to hear about. These are the ones that can't be measured. It's a huge undercount of people who are self-managing their abortions privately. People are sourcing them in their communities, and people are getting abortions in lots of different ways. As we've always said, you can't end abortion. You can only end the safe, legal kind. Is it going to be enough to make people angry and vote next week? Are people going to be inspired enough to vote next week? I, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand the Democrats' playbook at this point, because I just kind of feel like now's the time to be an alpha liberal and throw everything at the wall and stop cowering in fear, right? I, right? I mean, they've, they've got a pretty good record to run on when you consider how much they're up against. <laughs> Infrastructure, nice. Gun safety, climate action, the PACT Act for veterans, the CHIPS Act, which is going to bring so much manufacturing here. 10 million jobs, the lowest rate of childhood poverty in history, expanding NATO, a black woman on the Supreme Court, student loan debt relief, decriminalizing weed at the federal level. And now prescription drugs are going to get cheaper because Democrats played a long game on this. There's a key provision in the Inflation Reduction Act that Joe Biden signed last month that gives the Secretary of Health and Human Services authority to negotiate the price of drugs in the Medicare program. This is why Democrats were so excited about this reform, and unfortunately, no one knows about it. They're not talking about it. The price changes haven't gone into effect yet. But think again about how long Democrats were trying to put these reforms on the books, how hard they tried to be able to have the government negotiate through Medicare for cheaper drug prices. So much work went into it. It was so gradual, like every other progress we've ever seen in this country's history. But people are turning out to vote. Because they care about the climate, they care about gun violence, they care about voting rights, they care about education, they care about American workers having a living wage, they care about health care, and they care about women's reproductive freedoms. <laughs>
0: Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's com slash Wondery.
1: I'm John Fugelsang. This is Progress After Dark. Corey Bretschneider is one of our favorite guests. He's a terrific professor and author, PhD in politics from Princeton, law degree from Stanford fights crime in the lives of students in the Poli Sci Department at Brown. You've read his stuff in Time Magazine, the New York Times. You should have his book, The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Also, his new Penguin Liberty Series books on free speech, impeachments, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Notable Cases. And we were so honored to pass the mic to Corey when I was in London last week and have him take over the show and show you folks how uh, a real grown-up does it. Professor Brechtsteiter, (laughs) welcome back.
4: Thanks, John. Welcome back to you. I hope it was a great trip uh, across the pond, and uh, it was great, great to get to do those interviews.
1: London was amazing, but you, you, sir, you're, you're going to put me <laughs> out of a job. You booked some really <laughs> wonderful guests last week. You had Russ Feingold on our show, for God's sakes. That was great.
4: Yeah, he was terrific and talking about campaign finance, but also talking about the threat to democracy, really, from this proposed constitutional convention that that could formally do what they tried to do on January sixth, so that was really interesting to hear from somebody who 's done a lot to try to save democracy about the the real threats we we face now,
1: yeah, well, I mean they 're going to do it, and they 'll be doing it on the state legislatures and you know uh, it 's a very good chance that Arizona will be run by people who think they should be allowed to throw out the votes of any counties they don 't agree with. This is going to be the next playing field and Corey, I know that these are big, bold, boastful promises from these right-wingers. What we have to remember is, you know, say Carrie Lake does get the office, there's going to be a mountain of democracy activists with lawyers that are there to fight when these legislatures try to throw out people's votes, right?
4: I I hope so. I mean, I think that'll happen. My worry is, you know, we have these scatterings of uh, Trump judges in there who are themselves election deniers. We have one, at least on the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, the democracy is so vulnerable when, when you realize that the so-called bulwarks of the court themselves can be corrupted. So this is a dangerous moment. And, uh, you know, the sort of efforts to change the law so that legally you can usurp democracy, that that's another level of scary. So well, these are not, you know, idle threats. Yeah. It's, it's a frightening time. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I mean, Florida's already passed the law, you know, and, and even Georgia, the state that kept saying we had no election fraud. And then, of course, well, we've got to pass all these laws to stop all that election fraud. I mean, yeah. that's just as the denial of racism is the new racism. Um, you know, mm. the denial of, a, of of a real democracy is the way they're going after democracy. And of course, now, on top of all this, because the good news keeps on coming, <laughs> we have to talk about what the Supreme Court's going to be doing. As they consider two cases about affirmative action in college admissions both at harvard and unc now obviously the law is very well established professor in this area i think so there's really no reason to take a case like this unless they're taking it because they want to change the rules is all this just a pretext to see more long-standing precedent bite the dust
4: oh yeah i mean we're we're in the middle of a historic period we knew it was coming when the nominations went through for Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and uh, Amy Coney Barrett. The you know, It was pretty clear that their goal was to rewrite the law. I mean, reverse just years of guarantees. And we saw it, of course, and we've talked often about Dobbs' case and the reversal of Roe versus Wade. And they're about to do something that is equally important when it comes to not our civil liberties of privacy, but our civil rights. And uh, they're about to eviscerate uh, the main protections, both in the Constitution when it comes to equal protection of the law and the 14th Amendment, and also the hard-fought gains of the um, civil rights movement, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Education Act. And, uh, you know, we're we're in, in for a just, I think, awful period where, and I loved your transition, it, it's an exa- really an exact parallel. In the same way, that election deniers claim to be protecting democracy while they're undermining it. These three justices, um, along with Alito and Roberts and Thomas, the six of them are going to be claiming to protect civil rights when they really eviscerate them.
1: Well, I'd love to ask you about the oral arguments over these cases, because there's one thing we know for a fact, which is that killing affirmative action will have a devastating impact on Black, Hispanic, and Native American students, we know that, right? That's that's regardless of your opinions, that's a fact.
4: Yes, uh, you know, I think the the current state of the law is such that you can use diversity as a rationale in admissions, and this is sort of common sense to me that you want to have a student body that isn't all white that looks like America to some degree. You can't have quotas. You can't be rigid in the way that you do it, but you can include that idea as one of your goals. And uh, basically what's about to happen is the Supreme Court is going to say, no, you can't even consider race at all in college admissions, even as part of a overall concern, a goal to have a diverse student body. What that will likely lead to is, uh, what, a serious reduction in the uh, number of people of color in not just elite schools, but really all schools we're talking about that receive federal funds. Part One case is about state schools, that's the UNC case, but the Harvard case is really about all, all colleges and universities re- receiving federal funds. And once you take the ability to even take race into account, um, the numbers, I think, will drastically decline. And I'll say one other right. common sense thing, which is, you know, it, there is a culture of discrimination in admissions that goes back, Decades. And if you just ignore discrimination and can't take race into account, it's very hard to combat racism in any traditional way. And that's why I I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this is really a reversal of the legacy of the civil rights movement.
1: Well, I mean, that's what Clarence Thomas was put on the court to do, wasn't it? The president who opposed. A president who opposed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, George H.W. Bush made sure Thurgood Marshall was replaced with a man who would try to undo that work. Now, before people get worried, there are four groups that will not be endangered by any of this in Harvard. Those would be uh, the ALDCs. You know that term? Athletes, yeah. legacies, those on the dean's list because of family donations, and the children of faculty, ALDC. Um, ALDCs in Harvard are about 5% of applicants and about 30% of the admitted class. So, again, the people who are opposing affirmative action are not opposing letting people into elite universities because they're athletes, they're legacies, they're on the dean's list for donations or they're kids of faculty. So, this isn't really about merit, is it, Professor? No,
4: and I think that's a great way to frame it. You know, if you're an admissions office, you're looking at all sorts of things, all sorts of goals that you want for your class. You don't want everybody to be from New York. You don't want everybody to be from, you know, one state. You, you don't want only to have uh, a football team. You want to have uh, all of your sports filled. You don't want to have kids who are just interested in science. You want to have kids who are interested in humanities and social science. You see the point. Race is part of that, though. I mean, it's part of having a culture that, of a university that isn't just one thing. One of the most powerful arguments here, too, isn't just about the, you know, the educational value of diversity, and that's important, but it's about the need to have a diverse student body in order to serve the institutions of society. So to me, one of the most important briefs in the Michigan case that previously upheld affirmative action was from the military, and what they said was, how are we going to run the military if we have all white officers' corps, if we don't have, um, uh, we don't have people of color that we can recruit into the officer corps from uh, strong undergraduate institutions? That, I think, had an impact on the court, and this time they're just ignoring it. Our institutions cannot function if they are uh, all white at this point, and, and they shouldn't function, of course, that way. And that's why you need You're right. the student body to be diverse as well.
1: And likewise, let's also point out that a lot of faculty and staff of these universities don't want this. Uh, They don't want to lose affirmative action. They don't want to have a more white student body. The U.S. military has figured this out. The U.S. military is the greatest defender of affirmative action in our entire government. And a lot of students aren't going to want to go to schools that are predominantly white, uh, especially when a lot of those white people are in there as legacies and didn't exactly earn their way in. So what what is the standard now? Of affirmative action? I mean, wh- when's it okay? Wh- when is it not in these two cases we're looking at?
4: The court, just to sort of bear down on this, has said that there are, are banned forms of affirmative action. So you certainly can't have quotas. Um, and you can't have overly rigid ways of doing admissions. So um, in the undergraduate school in the University of Michigan, they were using a point system, for instance, that gave point values based on different ethnicity or, or race, and the court said that's not allowed. Instead, what you have to do is have a general goal of diversity and in considering an applicant, consider the whole applicant. Um, so that allows basically some affirmative action, but but not an overly rigid kind.
1: Yeah, it, it it boggles my mind, Professor, because affirmative action programs, as I understand it, were created to address the legacy of of slavery of, of 350 years of legal discrimination, legal disclu- uh, exclusion. I know that black Americans were were shut out of education for centuries by law, and then by habit. From 1890 to 1940, Harvard used to admit an average of three black students a year. I mean, it's just a <laughs> bad look. Who are the people yeah. who are bringing forth these challenges? It's not the universities yeah. themselves.
4: Right? And I think, you know, the court in the past has mistakenly dispensed with the idea of rectifying past wrongs. What they've said is if you do that, then you're not treating people as individuals. You're treating them in this rigid way that makes them beholden to the past. And so the court's basically already long ago gotten rid of that rectification possibility that that could be used as a basis for considering race. And what's wrong with that and what's wrong with what's about to come, I think, the idea of getting rid of affirmative action altogether is that we get away from the idea that we have to combat existing discrimination. And to me, how can you combat existing discrimination if you don't know anything about the past, if you don't take the past into consideration? Because our current discrimination is based and rooted in history. So there is a sort of just Ignorance, blind, you know, they talk about color blindness. That's the Clarence Thomas, the conservative view of how you should think about race. You should be color blind. But what it really is is just a blindness to facts and a blindness to history. And that's what we're, we're walking into, I think, as a country.
1: And it's a blindness to historical injustice. I mean, what happened at the oral argument in the UNC case and and Harvard? We played a bit of Katanji Brown-Jackson trying to explain to these people uh, Mm. exactly why the system is in place. And I thought um, Sotomayor spoke very, very movingly as well.
4: Mm. Uh, It didn't go well. I mean, I think, you know, to my mind, there's no doubt that there are six votes to uh, really not. I thought maybe there would be a chance that they would say that there's a difference between The constitution which is colorblind they've said that for a long time and the statutes passed in the 1960s the laws passed as a result of the civil rights movement which there's no way you can argue that they were concerned about colorblindness they were concerned about (laughs) rectification of past injustice of current racism and um, but that's not what's happening The, the court is is really poised six votes strong votes to just say you can't consider race at all. And this sort of, to my mind, ignorant uh, idea of colorblindness is really going to be instilled deeply into, into our constitutional law and into our way of thinking about the history of civil rights, really doing no less than, than eviscerating the movement that created these laws.
1: Professor, one of the things that frustrates me with the media's coverage of all this is the lack of historical context. There is mm-hmm. a distinct line from this case that stretches right back to the history of Brown versus Board of Education. And um, you've been someone talking about how Brown is still relevant today. Uh, Can you unpack it for us a bit? Because I know that that's something you're very uh, passionate about and how we're still essentially fighting the same uh, arguments we had back then.
4: Yeah, I mean, to my mind, Brown was about, um, it's often called segregation in public schools, but it's really about an apartheid system where the idea of separation was linked fundamentally to subordination and inequality. Now, that's the ruling, is you can't have, you can't have subordination in, in public schools, that's what it was about, that's what the NAACP was fighting for, really fighting against the American apartheid system. Now the twist, and this goes back to your original point about the way that election deniers are pretending to be election protectors, What is the case that the conservatives on the court, the six, are going to turn to as they eviscerate civil rights? It's Brown versus Board of Education. They're going to commandeer it. They are already doing this for their own purpose, and they're going to say what that case was about and what the history of the Equal Protection Clause after the Civil War was about was colorblindness, not even considering race. Let's just sort of imagine that there is no such thing. Now... They have lots of dubious history. They ignore, for instance, um, uh, uh, the fact that after the Equal Protection Clause was passed that there were immediate efforts to try to create educational opportunities for former slaves. And of course they took race into account. That's how they they found the students that they wanted to educate to rectify the recent past of enslavement of, of people. Um, the civil rights movement it wasn't about color blindness it was about ending subordination about creating jobs and so so that's, right. that's the tragedy here that they've basically eviscerated the history and and pretended li- let's just call it out lied and said Thank that you. brown was always about color blindness
1: Absolutely i mean these programs are at the end of the day an effort to make up for schools discriminatory admission standards for many many years And and these are standards that ensure that so many white students begin the game on second base and believe they hit a triple. I mean, (laughs) you know, if if this happens, Professor, if the Supreme Court eradicates any kind of race aware admissions, um, what's going to what's going to look like? I I don't think we should assume that right away diversity will collapse in the schools. I think a lot of the schools don't want to get rid of programs like these.
4: You know they 'll fight back, and there'll be a series of lawsuits brought by students demanding that their injunctions brought against the schools, and that they you know there'll be just a lot of litigation trying to force them into not doing it am I you know I wish I could be optimistic, you know what I would say is keep on fighting to these schools, but I think that universities are very worried about losing their federal funds. I saw that during the travel ban when I was really yeah. speaking out about the you know idea that you know I thought for instance, it was very possible that Trump was and if he wins again will try to create a Muslim registry. And that's not something that any decent institution can can participate in. But you know, I know firsthand, unfortunately, that schools would have considered it, that they were very worried about the loss of their federal funds. And that's gonna happen here too. They're not gonna risk the loss of federal funds and they'll comply with what is to my mind, you know, yes, a a ruling that is going to usher back in racism into into the system, or at least refuse to deal with the systemic racism that exists throughout the society. And so I, I wish I could be more optimistic. There are strategies to try to do admissions in a way that isn't based on race explicitly, but that tries to diversify the student body. But you heard the court today, the justice is sort of calling that out and said, well, that wouldn't be allowed either because you can't just, you know, do uh, non colorblind admissions and and call it something else. Well, we'll find exactly. It. And so we're in trouble. I mean, I, I just don't have any optimism at this moment. And you know, as somebody who for a long time taught constitutional law and celebrated the Brown decision, it's really a tragic, tragic. But all, day.
1: Gotta when, all you got to say, all you got to say, is that th- it's still going to be a system that rewards white kids for being born into rich families, and that's what yeah. matters. Professor Bret Schneider, it's always an honor having you with us. Thank you again so much for picking up the mic and uh, hosting for us last <laughs> Friday. I look forward to speaking with you after Election Day.
4: Yeah. Okay, John.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Corey. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-GRIT.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: I'm John Fiegel saying this is SiriusXM Progress. I want to try to get one more call in before the break. Marie in Atlanta, thank you so much for waiting on hold.
2: Mm, Thanks for taking my call, John. I'll try to make this quick. So, you know, I keep hearing about how uh, Democrats are focused too much on abortion and are right. virtually silent on the kitchen table issue of of inflation. Yes. So since the Republican theocrats and autocrats would rather talk about inflation and your home economy and tell you that bodily autonomy is unimportant, let's go there. Mm-hmm. Here's the closing Great. argument for the Dems. Tell One, me. how is your home economy affected by bills for a high-risk pregnancy and a birth you couldn't choose to terminate? How is your home economy affected by the cost of a disabled parent who had to give birth under dangerous circumstances? How is your home economy affected by a single parent raising a child whose partner died in childbirth because the doctor was facing criminal prosecution for performing an abortion to save the partner's life? How is your home economy affected if you are the grandfather or grandmother raising a baby conceived of rape because you could not get your daughter an abortion? And now add to all of that that... The Republicans want to reduce federal programs to annual budget items that sunset. So the Medicaid for that disabled wife and or child, the Social Security that supports that grandfather or grandmother, the SNAP benefits for the parent Mm -hmm. that now has more children than their paycheck can support. And if any of these people are veterans, all federal benefit programs means all including veterans benefits
1: correct so
2: the republicans love to tell us how government must not control private business decisions those business decisions include the decision to raise prices causing inflation to hit your home economy but big government the kind republicans are telling you that they're going to make a reality that can make the financial pain of that inflation much worse by controlling your personal decisions regarding pregnancy
1: You know what i i I don't want to i don't want to try and add to greatness because i think you've just given us an audiogram we're going to be sharing Uh, but let me just say how is your home economy affected when mom has to go to jail because she couldn't afford another pregnancy and had to terminate in a state where that's illegal how is your home economy affected when poor mothers are being punished for pregnancy With more poverty, how is your home economy affected when your daughter or your wife is being forced by the state to carry and bear their rapist's child? I could do this all night, but you inspired me. Thank you so much, Marie.
2: Thank you. Wow.
1: Thank you so much. Boom. Let's let's audiogram that. She's amazing. We have to take a very quick break. When we come back, more of your calls and oh, a, a segment for anyone who loves fall who loves nature, who cares about the environment, author Joan Strassman on her truly inspiring, and I would even say spiritual, and I would even say patriotic book, Slow Birding, The Art and Science of Enjoying the Birds in Your Own Backyard. If you're not into birding, stay with us. I guarantee this is going to change how you look at, well, um, anything above eye level.
0: We'll be right back.
1: I'm so excited about this next guest. And Chris, I'm so excited we have her on before the midterms cuz I need a little bit of sanity. And uh, you know, this book ostensibly is about birds, but I think it's a book about meditation and sanity and being more connected to the world around you, um which makes it a very spiritual book. Yeah, uh, and and to me it's a book about loving America, loving your community, um just by noticing and hearing more. Now, I'm lucky. I live uh next to Central Park, and every year When birds are migrating back north for the warm weather. In the early spring, birds that are flying up the East Coast see this little green two mile patch in the middle of all the concrete and they all land. And I never set out to be a guy who was into birds, but suddenly when I moved to this neighborhood, I began noticing around April, I would see the most elaborately beautiful and colorful birds that I had never seen or heard before anywhere else. It's incredible. For a couple of months, you get this great, great. Visual show of all the different species that live near you. Now, I now live in the north part of Central Park. I'm near Harlem. And the only tourists I see up here are birders, are people who go up to the great woods to see the rare bird life. And there's a lot of it here. So I've sort of learned to appreciate a lot of this by proxy. Our next guest, author Joan Strassman, has been a slow birder All her life. We'll get to what that means in a moment. She's an award winning teacher of animal behavior, first at Rice University in Houston, then at Washington University in St. Louis, where she is a Charles Rebstock professor of biology. Her new book is called Slow Birding, where she tells uh, pretty amazing stories about the most common birds that you can find in the U.S. They're birds that you might often see, but never really were able to learn anything about or to consider deeply before. Slow birding is the perfect guide to actually appreciating the beauty of the birds that just happen to be all around us, that, uh, like democracy, we could all too easily take for granted. It's a great pleasure to welcome Joan Strassman to the show. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: I'm delighted.
1: Um, you know, I, I, I found the book to be lovely, and I, I, I it took me a while to get a sense of what you mean by the title. For those who don't know, what, what's sort of the the short version of what slow birding means?
3: It's a takeoff from slow food, which is a movement started in the mid-80s in yeah. Italy to appreciate uh, food thoughtfully and carefully, and uh, most of all, locally
1: as opposed to fast food, which is so bad for us. I've heard of the slow food movement. So this is born from that. It's sort of just, uh, instead of just glancing and saying, oh, a pigeon, actually taking the time to appreciate things?
3: Yeah, watch, watch them, see what they do. Uh, you can learn about uh, what the slowest birders of all, the ornithologists have discovered about uh, uh, some of the books, some of the birds in, in my book um but yeah it's 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 something that can enrich our lives even in uh times of trial
1: that's what I found kind of moving about it. I, I didn't really know much about, you know, drive-by birding or speed birding. But <laughs> in the last couple of months, um, since I moved up to a very wooded area in New York City, I've learned so much about all these different Twitter accounts people can get on. And, oh, look, this bird's appearing in such and such a park and, and rush over there. And I, I find that very charming. I appreciate that that's part of the the birding community. But that's not what this is about. I mean, your book's really about watching and hearing,
3: yes, it's it's uh, of course, there's nothing r- wrong with running around and looking at the birds. What I call motor birding, but to me, there's something much deeper in really getting to know the birds right there and celebrating the very commonest birds.
1: You have a quote in the book where you you say, um, "Birds are among the most noticed of animals, but that notice seldom goes beyond identifying and listing." I encouraged my students to watch birds carefully as a way of enriching their understanding of animal behavior and it seems amazing that from for most of your students just really learning to identify 3 common regional birds opened their eyes and made them appreciate the species in a whole different way.
3: Yeah, yeah, it it really did. It uh it was really uh kind of a wonderful thing to to watch uh and listen to what they had learned about, about birds they had seen on campus their whole time and hadn't really ever paid attention to.
1: Well, I mean, that's in this book, there's 16 species you introduce, and it goes really deep. Uh, you know, you give us, like, for each chapter, tips on how to get to know that bird better, like exercises you can do to, to have a better understanding of them. Before we go deep into the birds, I, I have to ask the most obvious question. How was it that you came to be so fascinated with this? What was your journey that led you to become an expert as well as a guide and teacher?
3: Well, I've always liked birds. And one of the things I like about them is that they're so visible. My own research is was on wasps and is currently on microbes. And obviously, I, I love it or I wouldn't be doing it. But for introducing new people where you want... Above all, in this day and time, you want students to understand where knowledge comes from and that knowledge is not arbitrary. Facts are not all equal. You want the students to see the actual depth to how knowledge is gained. And I like to teach by doing they can't really watch a petri plate or very often a wasp nest. They can watch birds. So I have used birds for teaching for, for many years because they're accessible and they let students turn their brains on and try to figure out what they're seeing.
1: Well, good, because I want you to help me understand blue jays. Um, I find them fascinating. I know that they are the sixth most Googled bird in the world. But um, boy, they, they, you know, I I try to understand the behavior. I don't think they're angry all the time. Uh, They scare my cats away. Um, What is it that people need to know to help better appreciate? Let's start with that one when when they're watching or hearing blue jays in their yard.
3: Well, they're really smart. They're social. They are the policemen of the skies. If they find a sleeping owl or some other predator on songbirds, they will harass it until it leaves, forming a cooperative group. They are responsible for bringing acorns north after the glaciers receded, which really only happened you know, 10,000 or so years ago um they're they're just a a delightful bird they're in the same family as crows and they're mm-hmm. it's just a shame they're not the state bird of any state
1: but and yet they've had such a big impact i mean on our our states when you consider i i didn't really understand before your book how they really helped shape the flora itself in parts of north america
3: yes yes they did they're they're a very important bird and
1: they H- carry it- acorns that's it, right? I mean, we can thank blue jays for bringing oak trees to the north. Like I found that amazing.
3: Yes, um it's possible passenger pigeons were also involved, but that's not something that we can test whereas people have tested how far blue jays can carry acorns and it's it's pretty far.
1: So this is we're talking about the blue jays would grab the acorns and they would move them like a mile away, half a mile away, and that movement continuing over generations, over thousands of years, helped aid the distribution of the acorns to plant so many more oaks and change the entire makeup of North America.
3: Yes, it it, it has. I mean, they cache the acorns for themselves, but they don't find all of them. And they plant each one individually in the correct uh, configuration. So the ones they don't find can grow into new oak trees.
1: They're also, uh, they're very talky, aren't they? Our friends, yes, the Blue Jays. Um, they are. You, you talk in the book about how we, we learn more about their sounds and that there's even like the Merlin app that helps listen to the birds.
3: Yes. So Blue Jays, Blue Jays can uh, pretend they're hawks and they can make a hawk sound and it can even fool the Merlin app, which is pretty, pretty amazing because the Merlin app is just the best thing to have. You can, uh, it's a free app from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. You can put it on and it will listen to the birds and tell you what you're hearing, highlighting in yellow the one you're hearing right at that moment. It's a fabulous, fabulous innovation.
1: Can I ask you about robins? You know, we're thinking about birds we, we take for granted. I guess here in New York next to the, the sparrow and the, the pigeon, it would be the robin. Um, and you, you talk a lot about robins in the book. I found it interesting to learn that when we see them, like the song goes bop, bop, and along and they turn their heads to the sides, that it's really all about what they're hearing, isn't it? It's not so much about what they're looking at. They tilt their heads like that because of what they're hearing. I, I, I found it fascinating how the scientists from Canada put a whole paper there about how they learned that <laughs> robins are listening all the time.
3: Yeah, they're listening for worms. Yeah, that is Bob Montgomery and Patrick Weatherhead figured out that they weren't seeing, they weren't feeling, they weren't smelling, they were they were listening as the first way of finding worms. I think the blue eggs is also really interesting with robins. Tell me. That Please. the fathers will care for bluer egg, babies hatching from bluer eggs more than from paler eggs and they did a very complicated experiment substituting in eggs of different colors and then replacing them when they hatched the blue eggs are um products of higher quality mothers and so the fathers invest more not in their Uh, weakest offspring but in their strongest
1: who glad humans would never do that um, <laughs> I found it amazing that robins can actually hear worms in the ground and that when we're watching robins on the ground, bopping along, they're actually listening for worms underneath. And, and I, I didn't know that they mainly go for the worms when they're feeding a nest, right? If a, a single yes. robin enjoying his, yes. his, his bachelorhood would not be looking for worms.
3: They're big fruit eaters. Their, their, um, yes. main food is fruit.
1: I had no idea. They, I think, what, next to the cedar wax wings, robins eat more fruit than any bird in the world. I had no idea of this.
3: I would say in North America, I'm not. I can't say in the world.
1: <laughs> okay. I, I gotcha. Um, we are talking about slow birding with Joan Strassman. Our number is 866-997-4748. I, I have to be honest with you. I'm a cynical New Yorker, and the more I read the book, the more I, I found myself inspired to, like, just pay more attention to the birds I see all the time and take for granted. And, you know, you point out in the book that some people who get into birding like to run all over the place hoping to see rare birds, but it's much more fascinating to learn about the ones that are common to your neighborhood. And and you recommend having like a home bird list. Why should we create home bird lists?
3: Well, I'd like to have a home bird list because that's how I can feel the movement of the seasons. And I can see the, the juncos and the white throated sparrows when they come back in the fall. Uh, I keep my lists on eBird, which is another free app, which lets you list birds and it's a citizen science project. It uh, also helps researchers, but it just, you know, it's like keeps your checking account of birds and you can, Just go to eBird and look back. Oh, I saw the first, you know, white-throated sparrow on October 7th. I wonder when I saw it last year. And it just helps tie you to, to, to the place in the same way that the sound of the birds of home is something that is very emotive and will never leave you.
1: Since you mentioned the white-throated sparrow, can I ask a question about that species that I learned from your book? I'm sure you can guess what it is. I mean, <laughs> is it true that there's a there's a physical tell on male white-throated sparrows that will indicate if they are likely to um, not be faithful to their mates, if they're if they're philandering birds who mess around in other nests? There's a there's a way to see it on the birds.
3: So there's a white-throated and white crowned form and a tan-throated and crowned form. They occur in both sexes. It's from a piece of their DNA that got flipped around. And the white ones are the white males are philanderers. They have smaller territories. Um, they're not as uh, attentive fathers. So, yeah, the white ones are quite different. It's really like there's four sexes in this species because the white ones can um, white males can only mate with tan females. And then really? the tan males avoid the uh, uh, shenanigans of the white males by themselves mating with white females. So it's uh, it's an amazing system worked out by a whole series of excellent researchers.
1: Do you have tips for being able to tell the gender of birds? I, I know with robins, it's a bit easier to tell because of the coloring, right?
3: Yeah, robin males have stronger coloring, especially in breeding season. Um, many birds have uh, males and females that look different, but there's plenty of other birds where it's it's much harder to tell.
1: And why should we know more about the cedar waxwing? I, I have to confess, I didn't realize they were so common.
3: I just love cedar waxwings. They're, Yeah, they're they're evanescent, as I say in my book, that you never know when they're going to be there. But when they're there, you know, they eat fruit. So you'll find them in fruit trees. They are common, but they're very migratory and yeah. very they move around. So you won't necessarily see the same ones anywhere.
1: Right. And uh, that whistle they have. That's their most distinctive, I guess, noise they make.
3: Yeah, they have that high whistle that uh yeah, it every, not everyone can hear it, but uh I still can. Yeah.
1: And as yeah, they get they get as they get older, they it becomes like too high pitched for humans to even understand, right?
3: Right. Right. But you know, you find a fruit tree and I mean they they are common. It's they're not hard to see if you you know, sit outside in a meadow as I do in the fall and spring and just wait. You often will see cedar waxwing flocks flying through.
1: I, I got to say, I, I the northern flicker is a bird that I see on the ground all the time. And I didn't understand that it's on the ground looking for ants. One of the things I got from your book is that Ants are just this incredible buffet for the birds of the world. I mean, tons and tons of them. We, we know that there are so many trillions of ants in the world, but it seems like they're sort of there to be part of the bird food chain.
3: Well, the birds would certainly like to think so. The ants are underground a lot, so the the birds have to work for them and take the foragers. But yeah, Flickr's main main diet is, uh, is ants. So if you see them on the ground, they're digging for ants.
1: So, what yeah. advice would what advice would you give you know the average neophyte, uh, Mister Strassman, if someone who's looking to get into slow birding, besides reading your excellent book, what are the the tools and things people would need if they want to begin? It's not even a hobby. It seems it's more like a life practice. It's a path you walk to be closer yeah. to nature, isn't it? That's what impresses me yeah. the most about your book. I feel like <laughs> you 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 wrote a book about meditation and communion with nature, disguised as a bird watching book. <laughs>
3: So yes, and along those lines, I would say the first thing to do is to get out your chair or find a park bench and just sit and listen and watch and see what you hear, see what you can see, and just start to, you know, like a small child that doesn't know language yet but starts sorting sound into into patterns, mm-hmm. that, that you can start with doing that and as you slowly start to make sense of things that go together, there's lots of uh, groups out there anxious to help you. So the local Audubon societies run free trips, which can help with names. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology has lots of, uh, of tools for you to put names on things. Nice. But before you do that, if you just start realizing that the birds are out there, They're there because they want to be. They can fly off. That's what I love about them, that they can fly to far places and we just get a little snippet of their lives. So, yeah, I I guess a a chair, maybe a notepad to sketch in would be would be how I would start. You have to fall in love first before you can start, you know, getting the names and all that.
1: And and I guess it helps to have a bird feeder and even water right that you, you have to have Bird feeders
3: are great water is great planting native vegetation and not cutting it back in the fall. Yeah, these right. are all great
1: things flowers that have lots of seeds as well like black eyed Susan stuff like that in your yard.
3: Yeah, that's that's certainly what I plant. Yeah, black eyed Susan's Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I got to say, I, I really, really was so excited to get a copy of your book. It is something that I think is deeply spiritual. And at a time like this, when our country is so divided to find something like this, that, you know, reminds us of the beauty of these lands and reminds us of the gift that we have i uh i just thank you very much for giving this very meditative gift and as someone who lives next to a forest in a city (laughs) it's going to change the way i look at every i didn't know cardinals hang out in cities to avoid predators i had no idea Uh, people stay away from cities to avoid predators so the book once again is called slow birding the art and science of enjoying the birds in your own backyard joan strassman what a great pleasure to have you on the show thank you
3: oh thank you so much have a good evening
1: Thank you so much. I loved your book. This is Progress.